You are listening to episode 67 of the Interlude Podcast, A Conversation with Davia Moss. Davia was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was in her 38th week of pregnancy with her third child. On today's episode, she talks about her diagnosis, receiving her pathology report when she was 24 hours postpartum and still in her postpartum room after delivery. She talks about the workup that followed immediately how she handled it and how she experienced it and what her treatment was like immediately after her delivery and the year that followed. One of the things that Davia has felt very strongly about was breastfeeding. And and she talks about how she was able to successfully breastfeed throughout chemotherapy and after. We speak a lot on this episode about what it was like to go through cancer in the immediate postpartum period and beyond and what her life looks like now. On this episode, Davia is vulnerable, she is open, she's honest about what her experience was like and how it perhaps could have been better in certain aspects. Take a listen, I hope you enjoy it. And with that, let's get right into the conversation and welcome Davia to the Interlude Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Eleanor Toplinski, and I am a board certified medical oncologist specializing in the treatment of breast and gynecologic cancers. I started the Interlude podcast as a way to share the journeys and experiences of women who are going through cancer. On this podcast, we talk about anything and everything related to the cancer journey, the treatment, and life after cancer. As a reminder, the information discussed on this podcast is not meant to serve as medical advice. Any specific medical questions should be directed to your healthcare team. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Interlude Podcast. Today, I'm here with Davia Moss. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Um, So I am, let's see, I'm 36 years old now. Um, I am a nurse practitioner in adolescent medicine. Um, I also worked as a pediatric nurse for a long time um, in the ICU ER setting. I was diagnosed at the age um, with breast cancer at the age of 34 when I was um, 39 weeks pregnant. Wow. So you're getting ready to deliver. And can you walk us through what was happening at that time? You know, how did you feel a lump? Um, you know, kind of, you know, the last thing on your mind is when you're 39 weeks pregnant is, is cancer. So walk us through that process and what happened. Yeah, so it was, um, I was pregnant with my third. So to be honest, like I, you know, you don't even really pay attention to your third pregnancy because there's so much other stuff going on. Um, But I did, I was putting on a sports bra and I sort of felt something um, that hadn't been there before. Um, I actually have not ever been particularly great about like self-breast exams, not doing them on any sort of consistent basis. But I definitely knew that this wasn't something that had been there before. Um, so I mentioned it to my husband. I was like, doesn't this feel weird? Like a clogged duct or something. Um, and he agreed, he's a physician, but he, you know, he thought it felt a little odd, but we honestly just thought it was a clogged duct. Um, and then I, you know, at that point I was seeing my OB weekly. So I mentioned it to her and she felt it and she was like, Oh, you know, I, you know, I do feel something there, but let's just wait for a week. And if it doesn't change, then we'll do a quick ultrasound. I don't want you to have to worry about this. 
while, um, you know, you're delivering a baby and all of that. So that was probably at my 38 week appointment. Um, and then a week later, um, I just mentioned that it was still there and she, um, she said, I, I just really think that we should get an ultrasound. And she actually said 99%, it's nothing to worry about, but we really don't want to miss the 1%. So they actually, the nurse got me an ultrasound like right then and there. It was pouring rain. I had a two year, my two-year-old with me at the time. Poor kid is at this point already watching like an hour of my phone. And we run across to the imaging center and they said, you know, it might be an hour wait. So I'm like looking over at this two-year-old staring at my phone. I'm like, there's no way that we're going to make this work. But honestly, I just thought to myself, I'm going to have a newborn in a couple weeks. Like what? I'm not going to want to do it then. So I might as well just stay and make it happen. There was like no part of me that thought that um, this was going to be an actual issue. <laughs> I got the ultrasound and the radiology tech got up and went and got the radiologist. Um, and honestly, I just thought they were being really nice because I was so pregnant. Um, so the radiologist um, said he really wanted to biopsy it and that he would come in the next day on his day off. And again, I there was no part of me that was worried. I just thought like, this is ridiculous. Of course I have to get this done before I have the baby. Like, like let's just get this out of the way. So I actually had a good friend um, who's a year older than me. She had breast cancer about nine months before. So I texted her and said, you will never guess what is happening. Like, this is ridiculous. And she happened to be in the OR with, because she's a PA, and she happened to be in the OR with one of our breast surgeons in the area. Kind of long story short, the breast surgeon agreed to see me that afternoon. Um, again, just to sort of like make me feel more comfortable. Let's just like get this out of the way, go have a baby, life will go on as normal. So I had a fine needle aspirate that afternoon. And what happened after that? So you go to the breast surgeon, you have the fine needle aspirate, you're 39 weeks pregnant. So the next morning I was um, in a coffee shop. I was sort of finishing up loose ends for work. I was like trying to make sure there was nothing left in the in basket, no charts left to be done. I was headed into maternity leave. This was gonna be great. It's gonna have five months away from all of this. And I got a phone call from the breast surgeon. And the first thing she said was, where are you? She said that the cells quote, didn't look so good and I need you to come in for a core biopsy right now. And so for people listening, just to clarify, you know, the difference between a fine needle aspirate and a core biopsy is you get a lot more tissue with the core biopsy. You know, the fine needle, they're just really sucking out or aspirating a little portion, whereas the core biopsy, they're actually taking a, a good chunk out. So you get a lot more information. You know, I called my husband and let him know. And he said, well, I should meet you there. And I was like, this is totally no big deal. I mean, it, which really shows how powerful denial can be because at this point the FNA had, or the finial aspirate had confirmed that there were malignant cells. He did meet me there and we sat down and um, you know, the surgeon came in and said, you know, I'm really sorry, but it is some sort of breast cancer. And my first <laughs> response was, it's okay, it's fine. My husband sort of lost all color in his face and um, yeah, that was, and then I had my core biopsy. So that was sort of the start. And in retrospect, right, kind of looking back at the story and these events now, what do you make of the fact that you, 
I don't know that you were in denial, but what do you make of the fact that you were like, no, it's okay, it's fine. Like, how do you put it together now? I can't really decide if it's like the healthcare part of me or, um, you know, you sort of just go into action. It's like, okay, that's, it is what it is. Can't change it. Let's, what are the next steps? Um, the, The more distressing steps sort of came next. Um, my OB called to check in on me and she said that the surgeon told her that I was not going to be able to breastfeed at all. That's a big thing. Um, and did they think you weren't able to breastfeed because of the treatment that you would need or because you had this cancer in the breast? Yeah. So her argument that was that, um, the surgeon's argument was that she didn't want my milk to come in because we didn't, because we didn't even have my full pathology yet. So we didn't even know what treatment would be. Um, and this is sort of where I feel like my, um, background in healthcare, but also not being a first time mom, you know, my milk was going to come in no matter what, that wasn't going to change. And in the moment, I, all I said, I just, I went to a really dark place. I couldn't imagine giving birth and not able to latch my baby. It felt so unnatural to me. I nursed my first two, both until they were two years old. Um, It's something that I've always been really, really passionate about. Um, So that was was the first time I cried um, after my diagnosis. It had nothing to do with the cancer itself, but that I was realizing what it was gonna take away from me. What happened after that point? So you're in this dark place, you're struggling. What were, you know, what kind of happened after that? So I said to my OB (laughs) that the surgeon may feel that way, but you know me, I'm going to find out all the, you know, relevant information and we're going to figure out the best decision. Um, So I actually had, when I was still working in the hospital as a pediatric nurse, I had been on a lactation committee in the hospital and I had heard um, a grand rounds from a breast surgeon and she is also an IBCLC, very, very passionate about breastfeeding medicine. And I asked a friend who's worked with her on the committee if she could put us in touch. She heard my story from the friend and called me like from, she was out of town that day and called me and told me that I could latch the baby, the milk was coming in no matter what, she would call the surgeon, she would call my OB, she would be there when I delivered if she needed me. She was literally my knight in shining armor. Like she just rode in on her horse and pulled me from the depths of a very black hole. I think that's so important. And I want to kind of stop for a second and highlight that, you know, there's so many decisions about childbirth and parenting and cancer and anything that we're faced with. And I think it's so important to have an advocate that helps you, right? When you maybe, not that you can't advocate for yourself, but you need someone to kind of stand up for you and when you're struggling and, um, and whether that's breastfeeding or not, and some people choose not to breastfeed and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think whatever, whatever choice or whatever decision you want to make, it's so helpful to have someone that can, can advocate for you. Yeah, I mean, so much of this, obviously, breastfeeding in particular for me is what I am so passionate about, but it just really kind of made me so passionate about bringing the attention to quality of life 
and what we need to do as providers to make sure that we are paying attention to what is important for our patients in that moment. And so in looking back, and I always try to ask and think about this, is there a different way that it could have been presented? And and not criticizing anyone, but just so we can all learn from this, right? Because I always say things to patients too, and you then take a step back and say, wait, was that, could I, could I have done it better, right? And I think one of the goals I have with this podcast and this show is to have these conversations and say, sometimes the way we say things as providers, and I'm sure you've been there, is maybe not how it's always perceived. Yeah, I think as providers, um, I think it's probably, I'm going to make a broad sweeping statement that isn't necessarily accurate, but I think in pediatrics, we tend to be a little more flexible um, because we have to be right. You can't give shots to kids the same way and you can't, you just can't converse with each patient the same way, um, on a larger scale. So, um, I, the biggest thing for me was that the, my surgeon just said, no, it is not an option. And and didn't even call me and have a conversation, you know, sort of went through my OB. So um, just didn't say like, I understand this is important to you, but, or this is why I'm thinking this, what do you think? Or what do you picture the next week being like? Mm-hmm. Um, because to be you know, we didn't have my pathology back yet. We didn't know what was gonna have to happen. So. It, it really could have been a conversation of if this, then this, you know, um, but it definitely didn't have to be um, a very black and white. It's not an option. That's fair. I think it's all about meeting people where they're at and also knowing where people are coming from, because your surgeon probably didn't know how important breastfeeding was to you. And there may have been people who said, okay, I can't breastfeed, that's fine. And other people who are devastated by that fact. Yeah, absolutely. And that was sort of like the barriers I ran into throughout those early two weeks, um, you know, between diagnosis and starting treatment. So that is where I became just so passionate about getting my story out there and letting people know, you know, how we can advocate for ourselves using appropriate medical literature and, um, you know, still being safe, of course. Um, And I did, this was the best thing about my, um, the breast health physician, um, is I just kept saying, am I being crazy? Like, I need you to tell me if I'm feeling so sad about this that I'm putting my own needs aside. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did feel like I had appropriate people in my life um, to say, this is okay. You're allowed to feel this way. And yes, this is okay. You know? Mm -hmm. And did you go into labor naturally? So I was induced. Um, I had had a successful induction with my first child. I, um, went, my second, um, went into labor naturally. And my third, we decided to induce. And my OB came on her day off and spent her day with me. Um, I had a really good friend, actually, after my diagnosis, I decided to have my birth photographed. Um, I I was really worried that forever and always, I would just associate the birth of my fir- third child with my diagnosis. And so I just wanted to have 
photos to look back on and, you know, remember truly what was happening in that moment. I like that. Uh, and then you deliver the baby and what kind of walk us through you getting the rest of the pathology back and the treatment and all of that. So I got my pathology um, 24 hours after my son was born. Um, I was in my postpartum room by myself. Um, my husband had taken the two older kids to get dinner. Um, we did have family in town. And this was obviously pre-COVID. Um, and my breast surgeon came in and sat down on my bed and um, explained to me that I had um, invasive ductal carcinoma that was both estrogen and progesterone positive and HER2 negative, and that I had um, lymphatic invasion. So I would need chemo first and um, a mastectomy and then, you know, potentially radiation depending on lymph node status and all of that. And how did you take those, that news, you know, being postpartum in that postpartum haze uh, by yourself? What was that like? It was ugly. There were, uh, I am not a crier, but I was a crier. Um, it was really ugly. There was a lot of, I can't believe this is happening. Like, this is a nightmare. Um, it just, I sort of felt like out of control. Um, I had a nurse come in. I had like one of two of my best friends were on text alert all the time, of course. And a nurse came in and she kind of patted my shoulder and said, no, don't cry. And <laughs> I was like texting my friend, like somehow get this nurse out of here. Like this is insane. So yeah, it was not a good, that was a really, really difficult day. How did you get through that? I just tried to focus on the tasks, like, okay, what appointment is next? Um, I even little things like texting the pediatrician. So they didn't sort of walk into that, you know, coming to see the baby in the hospital and feeling awkward because they didn't know. I just sort of threw myself into like, okay, what needs to be done? Um, and even focusing on like what we needed to do for the older kids. And, uh, you know, all of those kind of kept me on track. And what was it like navigating all of this and the treatment with a newborn, right? Because whether you have one kid at home or two kids or no kids, a newborn is this all-consuming being and they need you for every little thing. There's so many competing things in the brain, right? At this point, your diagnosis, your older kids, your baby. What was that experience? It's funny when you say that, like that didn't feel overwhelming. Like all of the other stuff didn't really feel overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, I, so I had my breast MRI 36 hours postpartum. So they did it um, in the hospital. So I didn't have to like leave and come back. Those are sort of the things I was focused on. Like I sort of felt like I was becoming my own bedside nurse. I was like, you know, it would be more appropriate if we did this here while I'm still in the hospital and I don't have to leave and come back. Um, so that was probably one of the most traumatic events of my life. Um, I had to leave my baby in the nursery, um, which I don't typically do anyways. And the, the postpartum nurse walked me across the street to the appropriate MRI. And I walked into the room and it was just like, you see the machine and it just felt like a movie, like you have cancer. Here we are. 
um, for the people that are listening that don't know, of course, for a breast MRI, you have to lay down, face down. Um, at the time when I still had my hair, I had like a, I had my hair in a messy bun on top. Of my, I mean, I just had given birth. So things didn't look great. Um, and they started to push me into the MRI and I lost my mind. I had my first panic attack. What did it, what did it feel like? A lot of people don't know necessarily what a panic attack feels like. Can you walk us through that? I couldn't link it to like emotions, but the physical manifestations of just feeling out of control of my breathing pattern, uh, you know, shaking, crying, not being able to reel myself in at all. And um, I have control issues. So I'm very good at staying in control. Um, and I just kept apologizing and I just couldn't, I couldn't catch my breath. I couldn't stop it. Um, there was, it happened to be, there was a woman training. So there were two techs on and they were so wonderful to me. Um, one of the techs actually stayed in the room with me and held my hand and they allowed it so I could put my arms on a pillow and look outward and the woman that held my hand talked to me through the whole MRI. She counted down with me. She kept checking in with me. I mean, they got me through it. Um, but it was really traumatic. I can imagine that must have been a really hard, hard moment for you. Yeah. And what was the final recommended treatment after all of the workup and everything was completed? Yeah, so I was um, I was also sent to a larger institution for a second opinion. So that all sort of happened within a two week period. Um, a mixture of my age, because I was still considered young age for the diagnosis and the pregnancy. So um, the plan was to do um, ACT and followed by a mastectomy. I did um, following my trip to the larger institution where I had genetic testing done um, was found to be BRCA2 positive. So, um, you know, lots of decisions there. So I knew I was at least going to have a single mastectomy first, you know, with obviously conversations down the line of what else was happening. Um, so my port was placed, I think my son was three weeks old, and I started chemo, you know, within the next week. And let's, let's go back to the breastfeeding. So talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, so um, everyone told me it just wasn't an option um, through chemo, of course. And because at this point, I was nursing him normally. I was also pumping. So I was nursing a newborn and then pumping probably five to six times a day, um, trying to build up as much milk as I could. Um, and at first, I said, well, I'll just pump and dump through all of chemo because I'll finish chemo and he'll be barely five months and I'll just nurse him. I'll nurse him on the one breast. That's fine. Um, you know, uh, it's all um, the, you know, a breast will produce however milk it needs. So um, that was sort of my plan initially. And I started researching whether breastfeeding on chemo was an option. And that's where um, my breast health physician really stepped up and um, did all of her research also. And um, together with Tom Hale, um, Dr. Hale, he does infant risk out of Texas. And knowing the half-life of each chemo, I actually was able to 
breastfeed intermittently while pumping and dumping um, until, so for adriamycin, I pumped and dumped every three to four hours um, for 10 days. And then I could nurse my son for, it was actually 10 and a half days. So then I could nurse him for three and a half days approaching my next cycle. And then when I reached Taxol, it was seven and a half days. I would pump and dump and then I could nurse him for seven and a half, seven days. And I mean, that's amazing, right? That you were able to do that as well as pump the whole time and make enough supply because you know, one of the things we know, I mean, any sort of stress and on the body can impact your supply. So the, the fact that you were able to pump enough and then nurse them, I mean, it's just really incredible. Yeah, I sort of just poured whatever emotions were going on, whatever anger, whatever, you know, I really, it gave me a sense of control um, and obviously kind of a crazy situation. And I did have a lot of amazing friends that gave me breast milk um, for, cause when I was pumping and dumping, my, um, supply did go down a little bit and then it would sort of ramp back up as I started nursing him again. So I had amazing friends that, you know, brought me a supply, um, which was hard at first, but it, knowing that I could nurse him was just, it was amazing. It was really incredible. It probably gives you something really positive to look back at right during that time. Yeah, I mean, even now, like the amount, uh, the amount I still sort of grieve over that time is pretty painful and um, remarkable, really, how much that can impact you. I mean, I'm not that far out, but still, I think it's hanging on for a long time. But I really believe that if I hadn't even had had that opportunity, I would be in a much different place mm -hmm. emotionally. And, you know, you use the word grieve. And it's something that I think about and talk about a lot with patients is that, you know, breast cancer or any diagnosis that's similar is life changing. And you grieve the life that you had that you thought you were going to have with this new post cancer life, right? And you have to reconcile the, the two. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that was like for you, you know, finishing chemo, having the surgery? Like, do you, could you step back into this? pre-cancer life or find a new kind of identity almost? Yeah, that's sort of where I am right now. I think for a while I was sort of searching for that pre-cancer Davia and I'm just starting to come to terms with that person doesn't exist anymore. Um, I've never been a particularly anxious person and now that is um, something I deal with regularly. Um, and I, I mean, there are some wonderful things. I don't really sweat the small stuff as much. Um, I really, really enjoy my time with my kids, even when they're driving me absolutely bananas. Um, my friendships are just so much more special now. Um, so, you know, there are some great positives, but yeah, the, the grief, that that person and this kind of simple life doesn't exist anymore. Um, and you know, the, the reality that it could come back hanging over my head um, is, is a lot sometimes. And you had this single mastectomy and where are you now? Are you on any endocrine therapy? Cause I'm curious, you know, about your experience 
Yeah, so, um, and then actually one point that I missed was in the beginning, before chemo, some of the providers wanted to put me on Lupron to protect my ovaries. Um, and they kept saying, well, do you want any more children? I was 10 days postpartum with my third child and someone was asking me to make a decision of if I wanted any more children. And, you know, I said, I don't know, but I do know that I want to breastfeed this baby more than I want a fourth child. So um, I made the decision. So Lupron can be safe with breastfeeding, but in the very beginning days, it would likely suppress the milk supply. So I decided against Lupron for um, during that, during chemo. I had a single mastectomy at first. Um, that was April 2nd, 2020. So it was right after everything had shut down. Um, and I sustained my son on one breast until he turned one. So I actually held off on tamoxifen until his first birthday. Um, that was, so I agreed to go on Lupron to, um, suppress my ovaries and I, um, held off on tamoxifen until I could achieve nursing him to his first birthday. And then, um, I had a second mastectomy to remove the other breast. And so how long were you, you must've been on Lupron alone for a couple of months, but probably not too, too long. Cause by the time the chemo and the surgery and all of that. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think I started Lupron in the middle of May and I started tamoxifen um, in the middle of October. Okay, so not too long. And how has tamoxifen been for you? You know, it's so hard to tell I, because you're also coming off chemo and multiple surgeries and um, just the overall like mental fatigue of everything. I um, have had trouble with weight gain on tamoxifen. Not so much. I mean, you know, I was, I had a baby and then I had mm -hmm. chemo and I had a reaction to Taxol. So I was on high dose steroids. So just losing weight has become very difficult, which has never been an issue for me. So that's been really hard to sort of figure out this new body, you know, these fake parts and, um, you know, weight in different places. Um, but I, I think I'm tolerating it pretty well. And how have you kind of adapted to the new body in a sense? Oh boy. Um, well, I exercise a lot. Um, so that definitely makes me feel more whole. And I love that, you know, my body can move like it did. I think the medicine I'm on for my anxiety helps me care a little bit less. <laughs> um, and it helps with the menopause symptoms also. Yeah, that's, that's a day-to-day work in progress. And that's okay, right? I mean, I think that there, there's, I don't know, I always think that we are more critical of ourselves than other people are. And, you know, the ability to and just thinking about what you've done and giving birth and nursing this baby and going through treatment. I mean, that is I think we just don't give ourselves enough credit for all of what you did during that time. Yeah, I am definitely sort of getting to a place, you know, I don't have much as much chemo fog now. And um, like I said, I'm back to exercising a lot. Um, I'm also a Peloton person. Yay. <laughs> um, so I think I'm able to sort of see the other things that I like about myself. Um, I think when the other things were not there yet, 
I, it was easy to focus on my physical appearance and be frustrated with that. And, you know, I have like a semi-normal hair now. I mean, you know, there's just, there's a lot um, that I'm able to focus on that, um, yeah, I'm okay with. And when did you go back to work? Oh boy. So I actually at first tried to go back to work when I had two rounds of chemo left, but COVID hit and I was at home because um, obviously I'm seeing patients in person. So I, cause I tried to go back for like a small period of time between chemo and surgery. So I was sent home and then I had my single mastectomy and all of my children were home because everything was locked down. Um, that was an experience. And um, then I went back to work in June of 2020. So it was, you know, eight weeks after my single mastectomy. When you went back to work, did you feel, I mean, you have a very demanding job. So when you went back, a lot of people struggle with that brain fog and the chemo brain and, and just not feeling like they're able to perform at the same level. What was your experience with that? Yeah, it was really hard. Um, word finding was a big issue for me. And especially on your new consults, I'm meeting a patient that doesn't know me at all. They're often waiting for months to see me. And I walk in there and I sound, or I felt like I sort of sounded like a blubbering idiot. Um, I actually, it's interesting now, I have a tendency to remember my patients very well. And there's sort of a two month period that when I'm reading their notes, I don't remember them at all. Um, so I was definitely still very much in that chemo fog period. Uh, it was really frustrating. Is there anything that you did in particular for yourself that helped you break out of that? That is a very good question. Um, I think exercise was really the biggest thing. And I actually um, started to listen to books on tape more. I just felt like I needed to get my brain moving like more aggressively. Um, so those were kind of two biggies. A lot of people have told me that they feel like when they're, you know, after either going through menopause or being on chemo or whatever, that when they read, they can't concentrate. And so they drift and they can't follow what they're reading, let alone recall, like after the book is done. I always, and I don't really have a lot of basis for this, but I actually tell people to try to listen and read at the same time, because uh, that stimulates multiple like learning pathways. Yeah. I have found that I cannot read anymore. Um, part of that, I think now is honestly my anxiety is so high that I like want to do 10, 15 things at once. And I'm like constantly thinking like, what, what did I miss? What else do I have to do? So um, listening in the car and listening before I go to sleep has been really helpful. Um, I love reading. And so it's just been a really nice way to get back into it. That's great. Is there anything that we didn't touch on or, you know, in, in kind of looking back at your experience, what, not what could have been better or could have been worse, but, you know, what you've learned and what you would maybe say to someone who is in that same position right now or kind of going through something very similar? Um, a couple of my saving graces were um, I have, I call them my breasties. Um, one of them, we both were having our third child and she was diagnosed three weeks after, but we were in the same exact life space. We still have never met in person, thanks COVID. 
Um, but we were each other's lifelines in a lot of ways because we just knew what the other one was experiencing. Um, and that, you know, now through social media, we have groups that you can connect with people, um, people that were diagnosed during pregnancy, you can ask questions, um, which can really kind of pull you out of that scary place. Um, I, I feel like none of my providers acknowledged that like I was postpartum. Um, there was no sort of like, how are you feeling other than sort of focused on like my breast and the cancer, right? Like, I know I have cancer. I wouldn't be sitting here if that weren't the case, but I'm also still hemorrhaging from delivering a baby. So I just, I felt like I was like living two different lives. It, it, and that's sort of what I still feel like I'm trying to like pull it together. Um, yeah, so I felt like each special specialist was sort of like focused on their thing instead of like, how is your life going? Like what, you know, how was going back to work? Like you just asked or, mm -hmm. you know, how are things going with the baby? Are you sleeping okay? Like how are your hot flashes during chemo and sweating through your clothes at night? Um, you know, all the things. And I think that is one of the unique challenges of, you know, so adolescent and young adults, right? So that's the population 15 to 40. Um, and it's crazy. You've got a 16 year old clumped in with a 39 year old. Mm -hmm. but the point is that that group, you know, being diagnosed with cancer at age 35 is very different than being diagnosed at 75 because there's just completely, you're, you're at such a different point. Um, and it is, it's the whole thing. It's parenting, it's marriage, it's relationships, it's work. It's all of that. And that all factors in to how someone can do chemo and recover from surgery and all of that. Yeah, all I kept thinking throughout this experience was like, thank goodness, I know how to navigate the system. Mm -hmm. I, you know, for someone that didn't know anything about healthcare, or even people um, that are nervous about needles, or, you know, pass out at the site of a doctor's office, I mean, constant phone calls of you need to reschedule this, you need to make this happen while you're also running a household, right. Mm -hmm. And it just all I kept thinking was, if I didn't already know all of these terms, even this would feel so overwhelming. Mm -hmm. um, like even my bone scan, I couldn't touch my newborn for 24 hours after the bone scan. It was horrible. And no one like none of my providers asked how that was. None of my providers honestly even offered like some medicine to help with anxiety during that day. You know, it was just, I mean, he was a week and a half at that point. Um, yeah, it was. So there's just like little points that I know, of course, for the oncologist is just like another day at work, but there was definitely missing this, like, no, this, this is a little bit different. Mm -hmm. I think it's hard. We are not, in general, unless you're OB, like we're not good at being like, oh wait, does this affect breastfeeding? Does this medication affect this? Like, and we need to be better at it. And I'm just speaking kind of for the, the medical profession altogether, but it's really hard. You know, I remember being myself being postpartum and having to take a medication thinking, is this safe? Can I take this antibiotic? And no one tells you any of that. Yeah, I do. I get a sense. I don't know if you feel this way that it is getting better. Like I get, I get a sense that it is growing. Um, even um, like after anesthesia, 
all of my, I have a couple friends that are nurse anesthetists and they were like, it is fine. When you are awake enough, you can nurse the baby, which is so different from even like five years ago. It is, it is definitely, it is definitely getting better. I think that people are more in tune with it. Yeah. And I, you know, I can appreciate that pieces of my puzzle made some providers uncomfortable. And, you know, sometimes as a provider, you, your tendency can be like, well, you know, that won't work instead of, you know, you're exhausted. We're all overworked. Um, so I, I totally can appreciate that. Um, I just didn't accept it. <laughs> I, and as you shouldn't, right. I mean, as you shouldn't, I think that there is a lot of burnout in medicine, um, which we all know, but I have always said that if it, if there comes a point where you don't care, then you need, you can be burned out with the paperwork and the insurance companies and all of that. And believe me, we've all been there, but if there comes a point where you really just don't care about something, then that's the, you know, that's the day that you should stop. Some of the most emotionally draining days can be like the most special. That's how I feel. I agree. Um, Is there anything else that we did not touch on that you want to bring up? Oh, the only thing I think you've touched on this before is, um, how much um, like sort of integrative medicine has helped me with a lot of symptoms. Um, yeah, I'm very verbal about that now. And I wanna hear, tell me what parts of integrative medicine have worked for you? Cause I think there's so much benefit and that's another thing that people are tend to be uncomfortable about. So let's just talk about that quickly. Yeah, so what kind of guided me into it was um, in pediatrics, in the hospital, we tend to use integrative medicine um, to help with unpleasant side effects, particularly maybe um, in our hemoc kids. Um, and one of my good friends is, um, she works in pediatric in integrative medicine. So it first started, she had recommended some supplements to me, and of course, you getting it from her, I knew they were safe in regards to chemo and um, was able to show them to, um, at my oncologist, I had a um, nutritionist that would come around and she also verified all my supplements and if they were safe or not. Um, and then she did auricular acupuncture on me during chemo to help. I had really, really unbearable headaches on adriamycin, um, so much more than nausea. And so she was doing auricular acupuncture to help with the headaches. And so that kind of like guided me. And auricular acupuncture is that, are they just putting the needles in the, in the ear or what are they yeah, doing? It's, yeah, it's only focused in the ear. Um, there's like however many points in the ears that are sort of like connected to different, you know, systems within the body. Um, I have since moved to full body acupuncture. I see an acupuncture every, every week. Um, for all sorts of different symptoms, um, my anxiety, um, you know, things like constipation from the meds. Um, and it's sometimes I feel like I'm crazy because it works so well, but I've really become such an advocate, um, for my own patients and for my friends suffering. Um, it's really been kind of an incredible journey. I think that acupuncture is to be honest, underrated. I think there's so much that it can do. And I get, you know, it doesn't work for everybody, um, but it, it really can help mitigate a lot of these side effects. I actually haven't heard, I mean, a lot of people have horrible headaches with AC and I actually haven't thought about 
the auricular acupuncture. So thank you, because I'm going to definitely recommend that to people. Some people, yeah. the, the headaches that they see for a select population can be really unbearable. Yeah, it was, um, again, it sort of gave me a sense of control. Um, it also just gave me a sense that I had other people sort of on my side. You know, like I had more of a support team there as opposed to like getting another med thrown at me. You know, when you're sort of in the thick of it, like your life is just revolving around meds. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're already trying to make sure you stay on top of nausea meds. You're already trying to make sure you're like, you know, staying top of everything else. So it just is nice to have that option that, you know, you're not adding something else to the mix that might cause another side effect. Yeah, you know, I think we have this tendency to like balance side effects from medications with more medications and <laughs> you need to do that. But sometimes there are other other. I'm totally that. guilty of the same thing. But this has really kind of changed my own practice in that way of like, um, you know, I actually had a patient. Um, he is super med sensitive and having really unpleasant nightmares at night and not able to sleep. And he's a teenager and he needs to be able to sleep. And I said, I really think you need to try acupuncture. I really think that this might, you know, change your life. That's awesome. Yeah. This was, um, this was really wonderful. And I, I know yeah, thank you so much. So many people, if people do want to connect with you or find you on social media, where can they do that? Um, my Instagram handle is the word, right? Is that the Instagram? Yes. yes. <laughs> um, is Davia Moss easy? So D A V I A M O S S. Thank you so much for listening to my conversation with Davia. She is incredible. And, and to me, this conversation highlighted so many things, but especially the fact that we have to continue always to advocate for ourselves and to have people on our team that can help advocate for us. And also that sometimes in medicine, because everyone is so specialized now, we still have to take a step back and really focus on treating the whole person. Um, and that's one of the things that I've always loved about oncology is that you get the opportunity to do that. If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, I hope that you will take a moment to leave a rating and a review over on Apple Podcasts as that is the best way to help me grow the show and to bring it to new listeners, as well as even sharing this episode with a friend or sharing one of the other episodes with someone that may benefit from listening to these conversations. Uh, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Dr. Duplinsky, and you can find Davia on Instagram at Davia Moss, that's D-A-V-I-A-M-O-S-S. -S. Have a wonderful weekend. Get vaccinated if you haven't. Stay safe and I will see all of you soon.